we're sending money out of Syracuse and not just for 30 years, for the rest of their life. But when you are told that there's a promise that your generation will be better than the previous generation, and we're seeing that the statistics tells us that that's not the case, it's evidently clear that it only is going to change if we are going to be the ones who fight for our future. So we want to put in context because it's not just a class issue, it's a race issue. We're telling black and brown people and poor people, you don't matter. Welcome to Afro Futures. I am Yusuf Abdulkadir, your host. I am welcomed here today with a really, really, really brilliant friend of mine, uh, Trevor Smith, who we used to work together in our days at the New York Civil Liberties Union, but who is a communications extraordinaire, who is brilliant, independent, and in, in and of his own right, and who is the main writer um, and innovator and editor behind Reparations Daily-ish, a newsletter that you can follow, and I hope that folks subscribe to it after they hear this episode. Uh, so welcome to Afro Futures, Trevor, and thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Yusuf. It's such a pleasure uh, to reconnect with you, and yeah, I'm really excited about our conversation today. Likewise, and we 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 started having a conversation. I was like, let's stop because we got to record, and like this is like part of that conversation. And I just I, I would be remiss if we didn't um, try to have some of that conversation here. You know, I think there's so many there's so many things to talk about that I want to build the foundation to with you in this conversation um, with 40 minutes. <laughs> so uh, we may not get to all of it, but. Um, you know, we met because we both worked at the New York Civil Liberties Union. Um, I was a Central New York director and you were in the communications department. And we spent time working on bill reform. Um, there were a lot of things that we worked on together, but I think it's pertinent to this conversation because of the public communications ecosystem that we exist in right now in this country. There's this challenge across the country and in, in New York that is really pushing towards wanting to double down on the past efforts of of the criminal legal system's kind of vapid amount of arrests of black and brown folk and New York City being really the epicenter for, for that. And, and quite frankly, New York City has been the epicenter for many of these movements, right? Like whether it's the, uh, you know, criminalization of, of, of marijuana and, and New York being the leader in the drug war from LaGuardia to every successive mayor to the tough on crime approaches that New York has been leading across the country and really so goes New York, so goes the country. And in some respects, we've spent time to undo some of that, right? And to try to to try to begin to undo some of that with the work around bail reform. But it, it's, it's happening at a time where there's now... A, a, there was a backlash and there's an increasing vocalization of a backlash. So I just wanted to get your, your perspective as a communications you know, professional on the, the public communications discourse and conversations mm. around these issues. And, and, and I think it's important because the two preceding conversations that we had to this particular podcast airing, one was on, um, you know, the drug war and the effects of the drug war and the way that the drug war rhetorically and, and policy-wise has devastated 
communities that all, that were already divested out of. And the previous conversation to that was about the 13th Amendment exemption in New York State, which effectively legalizes, uh, you know, forced labor um, and the way that our prison systems operate in ways that manifest, you know, the legalization of forced labor after the exemption and after the uh, abolition in the 13th Amendment. And so I think it's totally appropriate because it's it's in line with what the pushback is trying to push us towards away from a space of repairing the harm and undoing the damage and back into doubling down on that. And I think the public communications around it is important and I would love to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I love that intro, Yusuf, and you touched on so many great things. Um, and you're right. You know, I say, I often say that if you look deep enough in a lot of these social issues, there's a story about reparations and almost every issue. Um, and it really is there, you know, and a part of my job here at Liberation Ventures, and, you know, I'll talk a little bit about that later about, you know, what exactly Liberation Ventures is, is to explore that, you know, I'm the director of narrative change. And so um, explore some of those stories um, as it relates to reparations, as it relates to race, as it relates to blackness. Because if you hear, you know, organizers have been saying for a while, we need to repair the harm. And slowly, slowly and surely, they've been demystifying this idea of reparations. You know, I think a lot of folks point to Ta-Nehisi Coates, the case for reparations in the Atlantic, as the piece um, that really hit home for them. And I really obviously understand that. Ta-Nehisi is obviously a really great writer and the case for reparations makes a really great case for why this country owes black people um, restitution in, in, uh, in uh, various ways. And beyond that though, to your point, restitution is needed in so many different sectors. You know, if you look in the legal system and it's actually happening right now in Evanston, they are paying reparations um, to the first 16 recipients from money, from revenue that they made from marijuana. Um, uh, legal marijuana sales. Um, so these conversations are happening everywhere. You know, so much harm has been caused and time and time again, the United States has had the opportunity to repair harm if we go all the way back to reconstruction, but time and time again, they haven't. And so Dr. Reverend Barber, you know, he often says that right now we're in the third reconstruction. And I really do believe that. I think that if we all kind of coalesce around this idea that we are in the third reconstruction, that means that we have to look at our legal system, that we have to look at education, that we have to look at the environment. And the conversation that I'm trying to lift up more, we have to look at our media systems and we have to ask ourselves, what does reparations look like in all of these sectors? Because you cannot have a conversation about racial justice, about racial equity, without a conversation about reparations. And we have to demystify that, wor that word. You know, our, our, our world is filled with stories about race. And so then, therefore, we can't have policy discussions without, without having explicit conversations about race. And that's okay. We need to have conversations explicitly about the harm that was done to Black people and how to repair it, the harm that was done to Indigenous communities and how to repair it. And once we start to center those communities that have been historically harmed, then we can have conversations around, about everyone. No, I think that is super spot on, like reparations and restitution across the board is 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 a part of the way that I think we have to begin to orient because the and and it's again this backlash is so um, 
genius in that it mm. it has coalesced in a number of different fora, right? In one sense, there's this what seems to be benign push against you know teaching students and children this type of information in schools, which is not disconnected from the policy objective of of stopping the undoing of those harms, right? So if you don't actually reckon with the realities of how our system was structured, then you cannot undo it because there's nothing to undo. This is just how it, this is, you know, we don't have white supremacist policies in the country. That's absurd. You know, the civil yeah. rights movement fixed that and everything went back to, everything's great, except that isn't the truth. And, and it's, it's, it's important to unpack and, and understand the ways that these issues have been intimately intertwined in our legal systems, whether it's the way the 13th Amendment has been used to ensure the maintenance of, of you know, forced labor so that people can be exploited uh, and continue to be exploited by criminalizing and then incarcerating them, whether it's by interrogating the way that redlining has affected black and brown communities such that those communities not only were not eligible for the benefits of what built the middle class home ownership, but their communities are then further divested out of and, and legalized de facto segregation becomes the mainstay and there is no separate but equal sign, but there's a separate but equal ethos. You know, mm-hmm. or you know, we can go down the list of the denial of of black veterans when they came back from World War II from benefiting from the GI Bill, something that ensured higher education and home ownership. Uh, and again, all of these things built the middle class, and then we wonder why there is this wealth gap. You know, but what is what I think is super impressive about the way that you approach the conversation, I'm gonna quote you um, where where you say no money is clean money in an economy built on enslaved people. Mm-hmm. And I want I want to sit in that for a moment. Because, again, there's this attempt to try to push back on critical race theory. There's an attempt to try to push back on 1619 Project, almost as if, like, you know, I didn't grow up in the South, but I remember reading about Southern schools who talk about the the war of Northern aggression. Um, I mean, that's, you know, early 20th century fake news, right? It wasn't a war of <laughs> northern aggression. It was a war about whether or not we will be a country that maintains slavery. But if you can call it the war of northern aggression, if you can call it preserving our culture, that's a lot more palatable mm-hmm. than having to really sit with the fact that we have organized a society that stratifies human beings based on race and color. And so if you could remind us a bit about what what that looks like and then how what do you mean when you say no money is clean money in an economy built on enslaved people? How the system is designed in such ways and why in your graduate research, you know, you've worked on this, but why you are committed to this idea of reparations um, yeah. and, and what that looks like in the many faces it, it should look like. Yeah, you know, I really love that question, Yusuf. Um, you phrased it perfectly. And so, you know, I don't even think I have to remind folks um, because we're seeing it right now. You know, we're seeing it right now. Since January 2021, 36 states have introduced bills um, or have taken steps to restrict what folks are calling critical race theory. And I'm actually making a concerted effort to not say that. Um, I'm calling it anti-history. You know, they're restricting history. Um, Critical race theory, and you know, I even get a little bit upset when folks say, you know, they're not teaching critical race theory in high school. 
even if they were, you know, mm-hmm. it would be okay. But that's not even what that's not even what we should be talking about here. They're banning history and how teachers can discuss racism and sexism. And 14 of those 36 states have actually passed laws. And so, you know, folks don't need to be reminded. Folks just need to pay attention. This stuff is happening right now. And then to your point, and they understand and they know why, you know, they it's strategic. They're doing it on purpose because they know that this is how you win. If you can shift culture, if you can shift mental models, if you can um, muddy up what critical race theory is and vilify it and say that they're trying to brainwash kids, then you can pass laws that can ban teachers <laughs> from talking about history. You, <laughs> you, you, from a narrative perspective, as a narrative strategist, you ha- I have to like applaud them because like the other side because they're being you know they're successful. They're masterful at it. Job. Actually, they're masterful at it. Right. And so it's our job on on what I would say the progressive side to fight back more strategically. And so let me hit you with some statistics, though. The I was reading about this this morning in, in preparation of this, knowing that you would try to you would probably set me up. Um, <laughs> and so the the Southern Poverty Law Center, they had a survey. And in this survey of high school students, they found that only eight percent of high school seniors could identify slavery as the central issue of the Civil War. And so through the research that I'm doing right now, I'm trying to understand what are the narratives, what are the stories behind the uh, behind why people don't understand and like kind of coalesce around the false narrative of American exceptionalism. And it really does go back to that statistic. You know, this loss, there's a real problem. There's a lost cause narrative problem in our country. Um, if only 8% of high school students could identify that slavery was a central issue of the Civil War, that's a huge issue. And it's it's indicative of the stories that we tell in school, in on TV and movies. You know, we 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 don't tell the, the accurate history. And now we're even going further um, and banning and going in the wrong direction and banning uh, teachers from uh, from teaching history accurately. And then another stat, um, 58% of teachers found that textbooks used, the textbooks that they used were inadequate in teaching the topics of slavery to their students. So let's sit in that for a second. At a time where the majority of teachers are saying that the way that we teach history right now is inadequate, we're actually pushing back on that. When the majority of teachers are saying we need to do better, we have policies that are saying, no, we're actually going to limit what you can say about this. It's actually, it's, it's quite ridiculous. Um, and it's, it's just indicative of how necessary the reparations movement um, is needed in, in, in a time like this. And then you asked me another question of um, kind of like to give my holistic view of reparations and why I, I believe in it so much. You know, I really came into this work. I was um, working at a think tank in DC, shout out to the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities as a comms associate. And it was there that I was first introduced to Dr. Darity and Dr. Hamilton and, and their work um, in regard to uh, uh, racial issues and, and economics. And they really wrote a lot about uh, the racial wealth gap and various solutions to solve it. So they wrote about the a federal jobs guarantee, which I just uh, reported on. I did a, a piece on for PRISM. Um, they wrote about um, baby bonds, uh, which I hope to do another piece on. And then they also talked about reparations. And it all really clicked for me. And another narrative that is so uh, so apparent in American society is a scarcity narrative. We think because of capitalism that we do not have, that we can't do it all. 
that we can't have reparations and baby bonds and a federal jobs guarantee. We can afford all those things. And I'm not a mathematician, but the, the economists of the world have time and time again reminded us that we can afford all of these things, but we just choose not to. Um, so that's really how I came into this work, you know, and I said, I've been saying for years, you can't have a conversation about racial justice if you're not having a conversation about reparations for Black Americans. You know, we, we started on this journey, this country started on this journey, and then it reneged on its promise. You know, folks talk about you know, the bill, the, the, the foremost bill in Congress right now, H.R. 40, is named after that initiative. 40 acres and a mule. You know, we were talking about restitution because the government understood that this country is built on stolen land and its wealth is built on stolen labor. And then, and that has to be corrected. And we started to do that. And then we reneged on that promise, knowing that that land and those, and those formerly enslaved people being able to cultivate that land and build wealth for themselves and sustain themselves, that that was important. And then since then, we've just deepened the harm and deepened the harm and deepened the harm. And so now we're at a point where financial reparations isn't, it's, it's a huge part of the solution, but it's not the sole part of the solution. And so at Liberation Ventures, we talk about building public support for a comprehensive reparations program. And to do that, we, we think that we need to bring, uh, build a cycle of repair. And we talk about this cycle of repair through a framework and the framework that we use is really built off model uh, different models you know we're, we're building off of the UN human rights basic principles to remedy the movement for black lives they have a reparations framework the national African American reparations commission they have a framework and cobra has a framework a men I, I consider Dr Darity my mentor uh, he has a framework and so we kind of tried to coalesce all of these together and what we put together has four components Redress, reckoning, acknowledgement, and, and accountability. Repeat those for the folks listening. Yeah. Redress, reckoning, acknowledgement, and accountability. And those are the four components of what we say needs to uh, be included in a comprehensive reparations program. So redress can and should look like financial compensation. And we can talk about the various ways. I think there should be direct payments but we can also talk about uh, subsidizing, um, uh, you know, we could talk about grants to, to, to uh, black owned businesses. We can talk about free education, but there does need to be a financial component. Reckoning in involves you know, curriculum change and narrative shift. And, and in shifting that narrative, we need a real truth and reconciliation process. And we can look to some of our global neighbors um, who have gone down on this process. And I know folks have critiques of South Africa, but the United States played a big role in, in, in pushing South Africa to have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which is ironic because we never have had one. Mm -hmm. um, acknowledgement. Um, you know, the United States has uh, apologized and acknowledged its harm in various ways, both at an individual in Congress and the Senate. But again, these things have happened in a vacuum. An apology without financial compensation isn't enough. Like uh, financial compensation without an apology isn't enough. These things all have to come together. And so the lastly, accountability. How can we set up some, uh, some accountability structures to ensure that we are building power necessary to continue on a cycle? And that's the part of reparations that I think is really, really, really important. It's, it's ensuring that harm doesn't happen again. 
You know, you you can stab someone or you could get into a car crash and you can or you could drive drunk, get into a car crash and, you know, serve your time or um, recompense in some way and then get out of jail and, and drive drunk again. There has to be an accountability structure to ensure that the harm doesn't continue to happen. And and it's important also to uplift that, like, you know, it's part of the way that the conversation has been oriented. And by the way, thank you for sharing that, because I think it's important for us to have clear, like, frameworks with which to approach our analysis and the asks and demands that we make of public policy officials. Um, but a part of the challenge is the, the meta-narrative, mm. um, the public communications around these issues, in that it, one is situated exclusively in slavery, in that, you know, their folks were like, I wasn't, slavery was so long ago, I'm not responsible. My ancestors may have done this. We may have immigrated here after then. Why do we, why are we responsible? Without understanding and recognizing that it didn't end in slavery, that in fact, these policies and practices continued throughout Jim Crow in the North and in the South. It existed in redlining, it existed in urban renewal, it existed in the highway expansion, it existed in environmental racism, it existed in the prison industrial complex, that, you know, that in one sense, it's easy to say it was back then and not now because then we don't actually have to reckon with it, right? Mm -hmm. On another Mm -hmm. sense, there's also this desire to say, that well, it's only for people who are the descendants of enslaved uh, Africans who were brought here and who tilled the land. And there's a debate about, even within the community, as to who should be recipients or beneficiaries without a recognition that really everyone who is Afro-descended is affected by those types of issues in different ways um, and in iterative ways. But that it is not exclusive or perhaps isn't just exclusive or limited to those of African descent who, whose ancestors were enslaved by what will become the United States, that indeed that those policies and practices and ideas continued and were built upon and the manifestation of them affect black and Afro-descended people still today in, in specific and direct ways. And so just wanted to get you to try to respond to both of those veins of thinking. And I've got, I got other questions as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I've, and I have a very, I think, interesting place in this question. So I'm, I'm from Maryland. I was born in Maryland. My parents are from Sierra Leone. Shout out to Gerald and Olivet Smith. (laughs) Um, And they came here and they became naturalized citizens. And so the story of they're not they're not only just from Sierra Leone, they're from Freetown, Sierra Leone, Mm -hmm. which was founded by uh, formerly enslaved people in what is now known as the United States, but under the under British rule. And so depending on when you are talking about uh, this issue, if you're talking about 1619, there are some folks that would say that I could I could potentially and I haven't. It's very hard. I've tried a little bit, but. I could I could potentially trace my ancestors to being in the land that we now situate um, and enslaved. Um, You know, they were uh, the story of Freetown is that they were they fought they fought for the British. The British lost. They moved to Canada. 
Um, you know, the British granted them their freedom. They moved to Canada. It was too cold. And then they, they went to what is now Sierra Leone and founded Freetown Sierra Leone. Or you could start from 1776 where, um, my ancestors might not be included. And I understand why, and a, a, a big part of my job is understanding why that this is a question. And I understand why it's a question. And I understand why it's such a discussed topic and why we focus on it so much. But I actually don't think we need to be, it, it, it's a, it has caused division if we're just upfront about it. But I don't think that it, 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 it necessarily has to. You know, it's this conversation about recent, more recent African immigrants and those who are the, the descendants of um, Black people who were enslaved in, in what is now the United States. I understand that question, but I don't think we have, it has to be as divisive as it needs to be. Um, to your point, the conversation about reparations that we're having in the United States obviously is happening in a domestic context, but the conversation about reparations is global because it really is a conversation about colonialism. And so we're not, we're definitely shouldn't be letting the United Kingdom or France or Belgium off the hook or Portugal. I was so surprised when I went to Portugal and we're, you know, going to all these tours and they're, they're not talking about slavery at all, at all, <laughs> the slave trade at all. And I was like, what? And so it's, it is a global conversation that we need to have. But right now in the United States, it is happening in a domestic context. And to your point, and this is the this is the this is the thing. It's like I think in a lot of other issues, a lot of other policy issues, we get to the nitty gritty in Congress. We let Congress bring all you know. Only Congress and the federal government has the convening power to answer these nitty gritty questions. And so I can say my opinion, whether I think it should just go to those who are the descendants of slaves, or I think it should be to all Black American or to all Black people in in the United States. But really, I, I just have one opinion. It's the federal government that needs to bring those who are impacted to the table, the experts to the table, the policymakers to the table to answer this question. Um, and the last thing I'll say is that, again, it's not just about the financial component. So in a world where the financial, uh, like financial reparations goes to those who are the, the descendants of um, American uh, formerly enslaved people, it needs to be about everything else. You know, we need to take down all Confederate monuments. We need to change curriculums. You know, we need to end discrimination in the housing sector, in the labor, labor sector with the pro-Black lens. And that will help, obviously, Black people, but it'll, it'll help everybody. It'll help the United States. It will actually allow us to heal, which we never have actually tried to do. Essentially, at the center of our healing needs to be Black people and Indigenous communities. Through that healing, we all heal. I mean, you 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 talk about the kind of transnational nature of this, right? That in many respects, it is a part of a vestige of colonialism that helped to facilitate and fuel the, the development and the extraction of both resources and people um, to fund that imperial campaign. And in fact, there's a, a I think it's July of 2021, article in Financial Times that talks about reparation. And by the way, the Financial Times, which is not your liberal right. left-wing <laughs> paper, the title of which is Reparations from Former Slave-Owning Countries Are Long Overdue. And just to read a quick you know, paragraph from it, largely because Barbados recently 
you know, cut colonial ties to the Queen of England and kind of like, we're like, we're done with that. We, we don't need to be a part of this, <laughs> you know, um, enterprise that, that she has, this kind of sovereign nations um, d- fiasco, if you want to call that. But Barbados, as the article says, as Zainab Badui says, was the first British slave society and the most profitable for 100 years. The British arrived in Barbados in the 1620s. They planted cotton, indigo, and tobacco and then shipped it to sugarcane. In the following decades, they decreed that all enslaved African people brought to the island were to be classified in, as subhuman and chattel. Soon after, Ooh. other slave colonies were established in the Caribbean and North America. More than 12 million enslaved African people were transported during the three centuries of the transatlantic slave trade. Some 44 million of their descendants live in the Caribbean, including Cuba. And so it is It is important that, like, you know, and the article talks about, like, the legacy of this, right, that white Barbadians account for about 2.5% of the population but own most of the island's productive land. These things don't just end with the abolition of slavery, um, and they're not just situated to the U.S. or the Caribbean, but that indeed they're transnational in that, you know, how could Portugal not, right? Like the talk mm. about slavery and chattel slavery, especially when as, as a country, you know, they are the reason why the greatest number of Afro-descendant people outside of the continent are in Brazil, a former mm-hmm. colonial state. And the circumstances for black Brazilians is dire in comparison to to white Brazilians or what what we have associated and determined to be white Brazilians. And so it's 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 fascinating because in one sense we we don't want to acknowledge it and so we we do a gymnastic somersault um convoluted twist to disorient people to believe that you know that was a problem for back then and that problem exists then and not something we need to face and deal with now. But then at the same time, we see these very same symptoms emerging today. And then what is more deeply troubling is the way that the system adopts and evolves to to find new ways to do it. And and I'd want to get a little bit more on what, what, I mean, I think you've helped to lay out a framework and frameworks to approach understanding how to approach dealing with the issues of reparations. And I think you've helped to illuminate that it is not just situated in a U.S. conversation, that it is transnational in nature, that there are governments who have a responsibility, not just to the citizens within their respective populace who are Afro-descended, but also to the countries that they extracted them from, that they engaged in global human trafficking to, um, to place them in. But there are also stark relationships to the climate crisis um, and climate racism that effectuate and are affected by these issues. So, you know, I I want to I want to again go back to the way that we are uh, watching in real time the way the system is responding to what became a global call um, because the public lynching of of Ahmaud Arbery and and I, as we all saw the public lynching of George Floyd and and as we learned of the, the, the killing of Breonna Taylor, it mobilized a massive movement, the largest in world history, of people trying to, quote-unquote, reckon with this, mm. which was supposed to create sweeping changes that when you push back against the system, the system pushes back 10 times as hard. And the mm. system is pushing hard. Uh, so I, 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 I would be remiss if we didn't 
spend some time talking about the way the system evolves to maintain status quo and to 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 push back against any sort of efforts. And we're seeing this in the fight for again, HR forty isn't like let's give reparations. It's it's to study. Yeah. <laughs> it's like to commission a study. We can't even get consensus to commission a study for what we know actually happened. So how, how, I just wanted to, to to see see to see your thinking on why why and and in what ways is the system pushing back against our real need to to remedy these problems? Mm. You know, I'll start with the why, and it's a pretty easy answer. I mean, easy for me, but maybe not to others. What white supremacy? Um, and we've ta- talked a little bit about it already, but white supremacy and all of the structures that it encompasses is the reason why we saw um, support for Black Lives Matter as a movement decrease in less than a year after um, the global uprisings. It's why, you know, there's a, an interesting report out um, that, that I think it was in the Washington Post, you know, billions of dollars were pledged by corporations, but a lot of them were in the forms um, of investments and, and not grants. You know, they're hoping to recoup on their money, to make money off of these investments in, you know, or in CDFIs or in Black-owned businesses, instead of just giving money away when they can. And that's a tenet of white supremacy, you know, and um, the tweet that you talked about earlier that, you know, no money is clean money in a, in a society, an economy built on stolen labor and stolen capital, you know, it just rings true. Um, because at the end of the day, the fact is in a capitalistic society um, built on white supremacy and built on patriarchy, money rules everything. And so uh, that's that's essentially why I would say. Um, and then how it shows up and kind of what we could do about it, um, which I think was the second part of your question. You know, I think it's, it's showing up um, it, with this critical race theory fight or anti-history fight. See, I even did it to myself. Um, <laughs> It's showing up in ways like that. It's it showed up with the election of Donald Trump. I mean, we had you know the first black president of the United States, and that is what. And it's just such a clear notion to me as to why narrative and culture shift are so important. And we, it, we Yusuf, we even saw it when I was at when we were at the NYCLU on bail. Mm-hmm. You know, we 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 worked so hard for for over a year. To, to push in a campaign, not just the NYCLU, with tons of other organizers and organizations, to push New York to, to end cash bail. And a couple months after, you know, the, the conservative press, and this is why the media is so important, the New York Post almost daily would go out and try to find a story about uh, a Black male, mostly, who would commit a petty crime, go to jail, you know, be released um, because there's no cash bail, and then maybe commit another petty crime at the end of the day. And then they just kind of push forth this scary black man narrative, this super predator narrative that we saw in the 90s. And within the month, within a couple months, they amended the, the, the bill that we worked so hard on. And then we also see that at the presidential level, you know, we had eight years of the first black president who I would say tempered a lot of, I would, I would assume the, the bills and policies that he wished to pass because of white supremacy. And then we immediately got which uh, arguably the, the, the most racist uh, president in the past hundred years, at least the past 70 years. Um, 
And so that's why the narrative and culture shift is so important because you can win on these short-term campaigns, but then the white lash, the backlash is inevitably going to come. You know, we don't need to wait anymore. We know it's going to come. We make a little bit of progress, we're gonna see a backlash. Um, because folks are scared, white folks are scared about losing their position in society, but they need to understand that that's not what it's about, at least for me. I'm not trying to have black people or people of color take the position of white people in society and then now we oppress white people. That's not what I want. That's not what I'm advocating for. True equity means that when a black person is born and a white person is born, they have the same ability to climb the social ladder. That their race doesn't play a factor in their future, in their future economic or social outcomes. And right now it does. And I'm gonna hit you with my favorite, I mean, it's a sad stat, but it's one that I've had pinned on my Twitter since October 15th, 2018. It's my pinned tweet. And it's, by, it's a stat from Raj Chetty and his, and his folks over at Opportunity Insights. In 99% of neighborhoods in the United States, black boys earn less in adulthood than white boys who grow up in families with comparable income. So no matter if you're the son of LeBron James, Bronny James Jr., or you're the son of a minimum wage worker who works at Walmart, across the country, if you're a black boy, you will always learn, uh, you will always earn less than the white boy who, who grew up next to you. That's what we're talking about here. Folks who come from the same neighborhoods don't have the same uh, future life outcomes. They don't have the possibility of achieving it. And researchers, the only, the only thing that can explain it away is race. And so we have to really understand that. And so therefore we can't have conversations, we can't have policy conversations without talking about race explicitly. And then the last thing I'll say is that narrative change is so important. And that's why I made it a point to, to I came into Liberation Ventures, it's a startup and I made it a point to say that my title has to be director of narrative change. Mm. You know, we see a lot of communications, directive communications. We see a lot of communications departments. I hope to see a shift in institutional organizations like the ACLU, the NAACP, and grassroots orgs, because we, we for so long have thought about communications as the end tail of the of our advocacy. But we go to the comms department when we just want to get a tweet out, or we be just want to responsive or reactive. We want exactly. We just want to communicate our message. Comms is about messaging and narratives and narrative change is about retelling a story. And we need to retell the story about race, about blackness, about repair and healing in this country. No, I, 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 um, I think you're right with the narrative issue because I think what we are failing at currently is a narrative battle, right? They, whether it's, so there, there are a lot of things that are happening at the same time. And I think that's why it's easy for people to get lost in the minutia. In one sense, there's a specific assault on the kind of country that ushers in a president like a Barack Obama, for whatever your perspectives may be on him, is irrespective to the, the idea that it represents the seat of power in, in, as, as we claim the leader of the, of the free world being a black man um, is something that people are like, they can't reckon with. And when Trump descends from an elevator and talks about all the quote unquote deplorables in his perspective, 
He's right. talking about black people. He's talking about Mexican-Americans. He's talking about Muslim-Americans because those are the others, right? This dichotomy of the 1950s to today where white men ruled the world is changing in ways because of demographics and because of the perception of power escaping out of their hands. It's why they're so bold as to do January 6th without any real you know, effect, quite frankly, without fear of right. retaliation. And even... As of this week, if you know Trump said that if he were reelected, he would pardon them. So without any consequence, right? These things are not haphazard or accidental. And by the way, this is very much the history of the country. It's easy for us to say that January six is 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 an anathema, is a blip, but this is not the first time. You know, after Reconstruction, there was a removal of federal troops from the South to go back to business as usual, right? Out of sight, out of mind. You know, after, mm -hmm. you know, the various, you know, state legislatures were taken over in, in, in the South that had black elected officials or local mayorships and local city councils that had black elected officials where mobs literally took the government over and kicked those people out of office and then instituted Jim Crow and, and seg segregation the government didn't do shit about it, <laughs> uh, didn't do anything about it. In fact, was totally okay with it because, you know, we have to go back to polite society. Um, and it's very much the way that I see the response to January 6th, that like, well, we have to respond to it in a normal way because, you know, no, there was a legitimate assault on our democracy. Mm -hmm. And the assault on our democracy isn't just an assault on the democracy for Joe Biden's sake but also because the power to give to Joe Biden was given to him by black, brown, indigenous, Asian-American, Muslim-American women, young people, right? Like that is the thing that they are claiming when they say they want their country back. And we should be paying attention to Charlottesville when they say Jews will replace us. And why is mm. it not surprising that after talking about banning 1619 Project and critical race theory, there's a discussion about banning Mouse, which is this graphic novel that talks right. about the Holocaust. Because it is never just, it begins with black people, but it will yep. always go to everyone else after. After they go for the black folk, they will go for the Jewish folk. After the Jewish folk, they'll go to the LGBTQ community until the world looks like the world they want it to be. And that any of the gains that we've made, the very small gains that we've made, which are important, but the gains that we made that are still perilous and that are still able to be revoked by a Supreme Court decision in the context of voting rights or right. affirmative action, that those things can be taken away. Reparations is an important tool to not just redress the issue, not just as you put out in the framework, have reckoning with the issue, not just acknowledging the issue, but also to have that accountability. So it is the thing that is necessary, but how do we actually make it happen? Because if we can't if we can't get a study <laughs> to tell us what we already know, which is plain in history books, then then how are we actually going to make that happen? Yeah. No, great question, Yusuf. Without narrative shift, especially. Right. Yeah, great question. And you touched on a lot of things that I wanted to touch on. And it just goes to show um, how smart you are. But Only because you've paid me to say those things. So don't, <laughs> don't let the audience get hip to me being okay. smart. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna bring, I wanna bring two uh, now, who are now black ancestors, um, black woman ancestors into this conversation right now. And so, you know, Dr. Maya Angelou once said that 
when people show you who they are, believe them the first time. The first time. And white people have really showed us who they are time and time again. You know, I just read, I read something um, in Canada. They were protesting. It was like an anti-vaxxer protest. And there is a person there with like a Confederate flag. flag. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. And so like the symbol, you know what I mean? Like the symbols and the stories that they're telling, they, they, they try to hide it, but they're not really hiding it. Why is there a Confederate flag at an anti-vax? You know, it's all interrelated. And so in one of my, in my, I think it was my first, yeah, my first newsletter of this year where I gave five of my predictions for the reparations movement this year, um, I also wanted to acknowledge um, the the anniversary of of um, them trying to take over the Capitol, the insurrection on the Capitol. And so there was it was the first time, even though they have Confederate leaders uh, framed inside the Capitol, it was the first time that a Confederate flag actually made it into the Capitol. Right. Mm-hmm. The I read another story. A black Capitol police officer was called the N word after claiming he had voted for Biden when he was trying to protect the Capitol, even though a lot of these folks I'm assuming are also blue lives, blue lives matter folks, you know, they called him an N word. And then lastly, there was rioters pictured outside, uh, draped in Trump, in a, in Trump flag and Trump paraphernalia with a noose. There was like a noose that they like strung up. And so they say that it's about stealing the election but let's really dig into what it was really about there. And to your point about Charlottesville, they, they in Charlottesville, they just said it. Mm-hmm. They just said it. We don't want Jewish people to replace us here. Uh, it was a little bit of an undertone, um, but we know what it's really about. So I just wanted to, to bring uh, Dr. Maya Angelou in for that. Um, and, and to say that because of that, we focus, I think we focus too much about trying to push white people when I think as a as a whole, we need to be organizing black people and people of color. Mm-hmm. If we can get black people and people of color on the same page as it relates to reparations for black Americans, white people will bring enough white people along. I'm trying to decenter whiteness in my work. The white people that are going to come along are going to come along. The, those that aren't won't. I'm more focused on building bridges between black people and um, other communities of color between those black Americans and black immigrants, like my parents. I'm more interested in building those bridges. And then the other person who is now an ancestor, ancestor that I wanna bring in is Bell Hooks. And she has, said a, she has said many things that resonate with me, but probably one of the, the, the most is a quote where she says, loving blackness as political resistance transforms our ways of looking and being and thus creates the conditions necessary for us to move against the forces of domination and death and reclaim black life. Hmm. Loving blackness is a political resistance. And so when you ask, what can we do? You know, organizers and ancestors, and they've given us the roadmap. And I think it really is about that. How do we organize around loving blackness? And I know it might sound mushy gushy, but I think it's really, it's actually really, really real. Like we don't know what it means to love and to heal in this country. And we definitely don't know what it means to love blackness and all that it encompasses. The messiness, the beauty. We don't know what it really means to love that. And we could, we see it. We demonize Malcolm X, but we love MLK. Why? Why can't we hold duality? 
I think they're both as important to the to racial justice and where we are in this country today. But yet we kind of hold one up in, in higher regard than the other. We don't have to. That's what loving blackness is about. And then also there's obviously like a pay, like there's a patriarchy aspect to that. We need to <laughs> uplift more of the voices of black women who have been the most marginalized, not even arguably, the most marginalized, cis black women and trans black women. So when we center those folks, and when we organize around loving those folks, we'll get to a, we'll build an environment, the environment that is needed to pass federal reparations. And then we can all heal. And we can get to a point, I tell my friends, you know, I grew up in, I grew up in Asia and that's a whole other thing. But in South Korea, the police don't even have guns. The police have batons. The only people that have guns are a very select uh, amount of people in the military. But the police there, they, they don't have guns. And here it's so, it's so hard to, and I say that to folks where I'm like, I want to live in a world where there's no guns, where even the police don't have guns, where there is no police, where we reimagine what it abolish and reimagine what public safety looks like. And we have to do that through loving blackness and loving each other. Because right now, the reason why we can't imagine that is because we have fear of each other. Oh, how can we live in a world where we can't defend ourselves, where we can't have a gun to defend ourselves? Why would we want to live in a world where guns are a thing? So we don't understand love in this country because we are so rooted in hate and in anti-blackness. Trevor, thank you so much. Uh, there's so much more that I wanted to talk to you about. And I'm, unfortunately, as you recently said in uh, volume 61 of Reparations Daily-ish, uh, which can be subscribed to on Substack <laughs> in your really important and powerful interview mm. that you had with Erica Alexander on reparations and the narrative issues around reparations. Uh, we could chop it up for hours, but we only have 45 minutes. Right. And unfortunately, <laughs> we only have 45 minutes. But I want to thank you uh, for, for, for both helping us to understand the case for reparations in a specific way that it is not just um, something that is U.S. situated, but that is transnational in nature and that there is a, a, a need for a solidarity movement across borders um, because we're, we've all been affected and victim to what systems have been organized and structured to continue to perpetuate the problems that we see today. And really for reminding us to center, you know, black women and black trans women and, and uplifting the names of, of Bell Hooks and Maya Angelou. Thank you so much, Trevor, for joining us today on Afrofutures podcast. Um, folks, you can follow Trevor at tsmith1211 on Twitter. Uh, he is brilliant. He's had his words featured in USA Today, Nonprofit Quarterly, This Is Insider, and so many other uh periodicals that I think warrant his perspective and insights. And, and you can, again, catch him on Reparation-ish uh, on Twitter as well. Trevor, thank you so much for being here. Looking forward to continuing the conversation with you. Thanks for having me, Yusuf. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Afrofutures is produced by WAER Public Radio and Kevin Kloss. Thank you.